Hello everyone and welcome to episode 289 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm here with Alison Tate. Now I'm CEO of the Australian Writer Centre and Alison is the author of the popular Mapmaker Chronicles and Adaban Cipher book series. How are you, Al? Well, you know what? As mm-hmm. our listeners, our lovely, lovely listeners lovely. are listening to this particular podcast, mm-hmm. I am probably winging my way to the Sundays. Oh. So I think we can safely assume that I'm pretty good. With your hat and your rashi. With my hat, my rashi, my authorial bikini, my <laughs> authorial blazer and my, all worn together. And my find your writing superpower author presentation all ready to go. Very, very exciting. And what is very the event exciting. called at the Wit Sundays that you're going to? It is to? the Wit Sunday Voices Youth Literature Festival. And I cannot wait. I think it's going to be so very exciting. The program is terrific. I am looking forward to catching up with my um Author mates, Michael Gerard Bauer, mm. Tim Harris, mm. you know, there's a whole gang of people heading up there. Looking forward to meeting some new people. There's a whole gang on there that I haven't met before. That, of course, is the great joy of Writers' Festivals for Writers, yes. apart from the fact that you get to meet readers and, you know, talk about yourself endlessly. That's always fun. Um, yes. and, you know, and also and- there's Astrid Schultz who is a graduate of the Australian Writers' Centre, and she's going to That's be there. Right. And Lee Schwin-Sin, who yes. is, of course, the very famous author of Mouse Last Dancer. That's and right, and cool. I'm going to get to meet all these people. So that's mm. the great thing about it and, you know, talk about writing for days on end. So I'm really looking forward to it. I think it um, should be a great event. I've got a, a panel on the opening night and then I'm doing, uh, you know, school sessions. So I'll be talking to lots and lots of kids about finding their writing superpower, and I personally can't wait. Cool. That should be fun. Um, I'm not going to be in the Wit Sundays. I'm going to be in winter in Sydney. (laughs) (laughs) Not in your authorial bikini. No, where I'll have the heater on and, um, you know, yeah. Although I'm not happier these days because I played pick up, put down on the weekend. Oh, my God. (laughs) I transformed my entire home office. It is amazing right now. I, I don't, I, oh, I, it's never looked like this basically. Since I moved in, it's been a disaster, um, mm. which was four years ago. And mm. I finally forced myself to pick something up and actually put it down in its right place or in the bin or whatever. And now my office looks amazing. Well, my office actually succeeded. doesn't look amazing. It does look better than it did though, because you know what I did do this week, which was, uh, which was a great and wondrous thing and for which my family is extremely excited is that I um, got together all of the, so, you know, we, we get a lot of books for review. We get a lot of, um, of books sent to us. Book Boy gets a huge number of books mm. sent to him um, as well. And so what I did was I put them together. Um, I think it was about 48 books. Can we just take a moment? Mm-hmm. About 48 books, which I put into two packs, one pack for adults, one pack for kids, and I donated the entire lot to the Shoalhaven Readers and Writers Festival, and uh, we're going to raffle them off as a fundraiser for the um, 
for the schools program for the Shoalhaven and Readers and Writers oh, Festival great. next year. So it's really quite exciting because I, what I love about it is that it's um, it's obviously like, you know, the, these are all pristine and beautiful mm. review copies. It gives them a second life out in our community. Yes. My suggestion is always that um, if you win books, uh, particularly children's books that you, that you you know, your kids are, are not the right age for or whatever, donate them to your school library and it gives mm. them a whole new um, lease on life. So we're going to do that and then we're also so um, the money that we raise will go towards bringing authors to the Shoalhaven next year for our schools program. So it's like a win-win-win situation and I'm very excited about it and I have a clear bookshelf ready to receive all of the new books that are headed my way. <laughs> Exciting. We've both been decluttering and it's so much better for your brain, I reckon. Yes, it is better for your brain. Much so better. let's move on to our links this week in the world of writing and publishing, the Historical Novel Society of Australasia is holding its short story contest and entries close at midnight on the 31st of August 2019, so you have time. The word count is a minimum of 1,500 words, which is totally doable, maximum of 3,000 words, also totally doable. Great thing is the theme is open. Of course, it needs to be a historical short story <laughs> set no later than 1965, which is a very, uh, yeah, you know, they're drawing a line in the sand as to whether, you know, as to when your story can be set. So make sure you set your stories no later than 1965. And uh, it's a pretty good short story. I mean, short story, a short story competition. Entry is only $10 and... Um, yeah, you need to you need to enter, um, you know, just in a straightforward word document. It's got all of the um, requirements on the on the entry form on the website, which we'll put the link in the show notes because it's a bit long. The URL, the show notes, of course, you can find at so you want to be a writer and have a go. I reckon yeah, have a not? go. I like the fact that they tell you, um, like the the thing with um guidelines is you know with these kinds of things is you just want them to be as specific as possible so you have a very very clear picture if you um of what you can and can't do um and so there's a line on here that says time slip historical thrillers detective historical romance fantasy alternate and steampunk historical fiction are all admissible so there's no question that they're open to all comers basically yeah, and the um, the judge is Sophie Masson, so it's a great thing to get uh, your your story in front of an award winning author. Absolutely, mm. absolutely. Have a crack. Have a crack. So our next link is something that you've done. Oh, yes. So, um, you know, being school holidays and obviously there's, a, you know, lots of people out there trying to entertain their children, um, which is <laughs> I send mm. my children to boxing intensives. I However, you're an awesome mum. I that's Well, so fun. you know, Mr. 12 is currently off smashing a punching bag. He came home yesterday, so we're on day two today, and he came home yesterday and he was outraged, as he often is. I just, I don't know if it's being 12, just makes you outraged in general, or if it's him. Um, but he was outraged because, you know, you can't spar until you're 14, so you can't actually hit anyone else until really? you're 14. So what do you hit? Well, you hit punching bags and you train, which I thought was totally fine given that he's 12 years old and I don't really need him smashing other people at this point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and to be honest with you, like this is great for fitness for him. Uh, he's, you know, we've talked about him before. He's the Energizer Bunny. He's a Kelvie. Mm. Um, so this kind of thing. I I dropped him off yesterday and I said to them, look, all I need from this is for him to be tired when I pick him up. 
yeah. and be like, we'll do our best. So I went to pick him up yesterday and he was still, you know, turning cartwheels in the car park. Mm. So that didn't really work out for me. But um, anyway, I do that with my with my youngest son. But other people, you know, send their children to writing courses or set them writing yes. challenges, which is yes. brilliant. Um so over the um, last little while, I've been doing on my Facebook page some uh, some little videos about um, about writing tips for kids, um, and some of them are well. Basically, I, I when I'm set up to do video feedback for my kids' creative writing quest, which mm. is my online writing course, um, and every story that gets uploaded, I, I read the story and I give you know video personalized video feedback. So when I have it all set up, because you know I have my banner of glory out, my authorial blazer on, and I'm all ready to go, mm. um, I will sometimes do. A, a live stream Facebook um, just of, uh, you know, whatever has occurred to me from what I'm doing that day, um, some writing tips for kids. So I've put them all into a into a blog post to make it easier for people to find them. Um, there's one, it's at alisontate.com. I'll put the link in the show notes, but it's got three short videos on it that have writing tips for kids. So if you've got a, mm. uh, a kid who's interested in writing instead of boxing, uh, you might find mm-hmm. that um, a useful thing to have a look at. Uh this week I put up also on Facebook a, a, a just a little short thing, uh, which was uh, three tips for teen writers, for slightly mm. older writers, um, one of which was quite interesting because uh, I had a few teachers comment <laughs> on what I said. Mm. So one of the things I have found when I go to do uh, – writing workshops in high schools is that you come across these kids who are, and and I had a writing group last year at one of my local high schools full of kids who are very, very enthusiastic writers. And enthusiastic writers, when you are someone who loves writing and, Mm. uh, you know, you do it yourself in your spare time, writing for school assignments can feel incredibly restrictive um, Mm. because they do have you know, quite specific requirements. And as I said to the kids, and as I have said every time I go to do a workshop in a high school with a a, a group of keen writers, um, writing for your school assignments or for your HSC is a very specific type of writing, Mm. um, very specific. And, you know, there's often a marking rubric and there's, you know, a a lot of what feels um, unnatural to a writer who likes to you know, really get their flow on. Um, writing for your HSC can feel a, a, like quite restrictive, um, and you have to, you know, you've got to tick boxes. You've got to use words. You've got to, mm. um, you know, you've got to use your kind of dialogue tags that you probably wouldn't use if you were just naturally writing. But, you know, we we've talked about this, I think, before. When we write um, as published authors, the dialogue tag we most use is said because it disappears. Whereas mm. when you write for your HSC at, or for school assignments they're looking to see that you understand, you know, dialogue tags. They're looking for you to use bellowed, you know, screamed, shouted. You know, there's an awful lot of emoting going along in dialogue tags often for for that sort of writing. Um, And the whole thing came basically from a conversation I had last week with a a young writer friend of mine who was telling me how she found the, the, the briefs incredibly, you know, restrictive. And I said, well, this is part of what being a professional writer is, is writing to a brief. And mm. you have to think about this this marking rubric that you have as a brief 
from a boss. If you do content writing, if you do copywriting, if you do um, journalism, you've always got to write with an audience in mind or with a boss in mind. And so, you know, this if you can reframe your thinking on this assignment as being, well, this is the story brief. These are the boxes I have to tick, you know, if I want my work to be published, so to speak. Um, so, you know, that's the way I need to look at it. And so that was one of the tips that I gave in my, in my video uh, that I made this week. And there were a couple of teachers who commented saying, what a good reframing of that particular, um, you know, context was because it can feel very restrictive if you are a, a writer who likes, a kid who likes to write um, because a lot of the scaffolding mm. and things that they do at school are for kids who who need support in these areas. If you're someone mm. who instinctively gets it, you, you find it like very, very frustrating. So oh, yes. I'm doing my best, people, to help reframe the, the whole conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Great enrichment kind of activities. Yeah. Yeah, yes. Fantastic. All right. So if uh, you're interested in finding out more about the um, course that Alison referred to, her course where she gives video feedback to students who are typically between 9 and 14, go to writercentre.com.au slash quest because it's called A Creative Writing Kids Quest. So writercentre.com.au slash quest. All right, let's move on. Do you have any other links for us, Al? Oh, yes, I do. Um, so I just want to give a shout out to the Little Book Room, which is a bookshop in Melbourne. Um, they are currently conducting a book drive for Ronald McDonald House Charities. They mm. are trying to, you know, to get books to kids, you know, who need them at, you know, at, at, at difficult times in their lives. I think they're aiming to, to get um, 800 books um, into Ronald McDonald House Charities. They've got a whole list there that are um, a, a book list that they have uh, put together that, you know, uh, the kinds of books that, that kids that sort of in that space might find useful. Um, if you go to littlebookroom.com.au, you can have a look at the, the overview of the, of the book drive and also the book list that they have available there. And you can buy a book to donate to the uh, to the book drive for Ronald McDonald House. So I just think it's a great initiative and I just wanted to say well done Little Book Room in Melbourne. Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. What a great idea. All right, let's move on to a giveaway this week. We have three signed copies of The Last Days of the Romanov Dances by Kerry Turner. It's set in Petrograd, 1914, a country on a knife edge. I feel like I need to do that cinematic you know, yeah, voiceover yeah. voice, but I yeah. won't. Oh, <laughs> oh you disappoint oh. And I need a that country sweeping. on a knife edge. That's right. The you story of two yes. people caught in the middle with everything to lose. That kind of voice? Yeah, keep going. Go on. A stunning debut from a talented new Australian voice in historical fiction. Val Valentina Yoshova's position in the Romanov's Imperial Russian Ballet is the only thing that keeps her from the clutches of poverty. Then Luka Zhirkov joins the company and suddenly everything she has built is put at risk. A powerful novel of revolution, passion and just how much two people will sacrifice. Oh, dun, dun, dun. my God. You I need, need to job. be the voiceover. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Well done. We should have like sweeping cinematic music um, in the background, but we're I, not I can't that believe you didn't organise that for me. Yeah, really. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Alison did such a great job at describing that. If you want to win one of three signed copies of The Last Days of the Romanov Dances by Kerry Turner, then the competition is over at writercentre.com.au 
slash win and entries close on the 22nd of July. So if you go to that link, writercenter.com.au slash win in the future, don't worry, there'll be some other awesome competition there for you to enter. So we're going to move on now to Al. Are you ready for the word of the week? Dun, dun, dun. Uh-huh. The word of the week. Oh, my God. We can't stop it now. Yes, I'm ready, Val. <laughs> Hit me. Okay. Ensorcel. That's E-N as in E-N for Nelly. N- sorry, E-N-S-O-R-C-E-L-L. Ensorcel. Yes, I have heard of it, Valerie. <laughs> yes, I have. And do you know what it means? It has to do with sorcery. It has to do with, you know, it's well, from yes. that. Well, yes. Good Am I right? Yes. So yeah. this it's not means a guess. to I knew. Okay. Okay. Good <laughs> good knowledge. This means to bewitch or enchant. So you might say she had the powers to ensorcel unsuspecting travelers. Mm. Yeah. Unsuspecting travelers. Okay. Well, you know, whatever. <laughs> I don't know how I came up with that. Okay. But... <laughs> yes, she was. Those unsuspecting travelers being ensorcelled everywhere they go. Exactly. Excellent. I like it. Good word, ensorcel. All right. Let's move on to our writer in residence this week. Okay. So we had a good chat with Alex Landragon. What a great, what a great name, Landragon. What a great name. He sounds mm. like he could ensorcel anybody. He does. Don't you think? Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. That's and like it comes definite... from the French, I know, which they probably pronounce it a slightly different way, but Alex himself pronounces it Landragon. He is a French Armenian Australian writer and was born in France, but uh, migrated to Victoria as a child and is now a freelance copywriter. And he's the guy who has written many Lonely Planet guides to various places oh. around the world because he's a big traveller. But now he he's ensorcelling unsuspecting travellers. Oh <laughs> yeah. it's, it's just all coming together. That's what? right. I knew I did it for a reason. <laughs> but he has now written a uh, incredibly um, unique novel, which is going great guns all over the place. It's called Crossings, and um, let's have a listen to Alex. Thanks so much for joining us today, Alex. You're most welcome. Now, you have written a book that is getting a lot of um, chatter around the place because it's a little bit different. Now, for those readers who haven't grabbed a copy yet of Crossings, can you tell us what it's about? Well, um, it's about, I don't know how much of it to give away, but I, Mm -hmm. I always describe it as being about a couple of characters who um, have the ability to cross from one body into another by looking someone else in the eyes for a few minutes. And that crossing, as I call it, is an exchange. So the, uh, the protagonist passes into the body of the other person, but the other person's identity or soul passes into the protagonist's body. So it's a swap. Now, it's a pretty unique um, – you've written it in a pretty unique way and I swear I was sitting there going, how in the world did he do this? But basically your book can be read in a couple of different directions. You could probably better explain it to listeners than me. Perhaps you could explain how that works in this book. 
Okay. So I should mention that the book is a historical novel that begins in 1791 and ends in 1940 uh, and is set mostly in Paris. I have uh, I, re I initially wrote it a little bit in the style of David Mitchell's The Cloud Atlas, and that was definitely one of the influences uh, while I was writing the book. But quite late in the writing process, I realised that I had the opportunity to do something um, that had never really been done before, although there are other books that are quite similar, notably Julio Cortazar's Hopscotch, I realised that I had the opportunity to write a book that could be read in two completely different directions. Same book, but different beginning, middle and ending. And I found that idea very compelling for a number of reasons. Not just because it's never quite been done before as far as I know, but also, and not just because it's fun and exciting and compelling, but also because it really takes up a number of the themes in the book. There are two different directions, but this is also a book about two lovers who are separated. It's a book about exile. It's a book about multiplicity. It's a book about um, a choice that is made very early on that has repercussions that last 150 years. So it just made so much sense, even though it came quite late in the writing process, to follow up on this idea and to make it work as a book that could be read in two different sequences. Now, I have so many questions about this, but before we delve into that as aspect of it, which is fascinating, the the premise itself, the, so your story, the spark of the story, how did you, how did that idea form in the first place? Well, that is a long story in itself. <laughs> so I um, decided that I wanted to be a writer when I was 16. I'm from a very dispersed or, you know, if you like, culturally dispersed background, French, Armenian, but not just Armenian, but Armenian from different places. I came to Australia as a, as a kid. When I was 16, I, I decided um, in a vocational sense, like almost like a conversion experience, that I wanted to be a writer. Uh, but my problem was that um, I didn't at the time identify really as Australian, uh, although I do more so now, that's been a process, a, life, uh, a lifelong process. But as a writer, I really struggled for a long time and I had to explore for a long time to come up with what I wanted to write about. Um, for example, I did a creative writing degree about 15 years ago and wrote a, a, a realist rural family novel similar to many others that are around but I didn't really strongly identify with it enough to want to pursue that to the very end. So when, around the time when I was 40, so by that stage I'd wanted to be a writer for more than 20 years and I'd been calling myself a writer for more than 20 years. I'd had a career as a, a travel writer and as a freelance writer, but creatively I was still at that same impasse where I just didn't know what to write and I knew that I, I associated myself with a tradition that was not mainstream in Australia at the time. And that was the tradition of, for example, Borges and Cortazar, George Perec, and, and the metafiction. Umberto Eco is another good example. But when I read David Mitchell, I realised, and also especially Roberto Bolaño, I realised that there was an opportunity for me to really fully explore 
um, the tradition that I identified with. And so I launched into a project where I called it the Daily Fiction Project. And, and as part of that, I wrote and published a story on a website every day. And I wanted to do that for 12 months. Wow. It was, yeah, every weekday. So I took the weekends off, but it was five stories a week. And I loved it. I really plunged into it. But the weird thing was about two or three months into it, I had a couple of very um, uh, significant personal setbacks. And I decided to continue with the Daily Fiction Project despite these setbacks because I thought I had a hunch that um, when you combine creativity with um, personal tragedy, that um, the, the creativity can help you through the personal tragedy, but also the, the, the personal aspects can really deepen and make more interesting your creative um, work as well. So I went through this process for eight months. By the eighth month, I was getting really desperate for ideas, as you can imagine. <laughs> and I started really having to dig deeper than I ever thought possible. And I thought back for story 151, I thought back to a story I had been told by my creative writing instructor, Chris Wallace Crabb at Melbourne Uni in first year uni in a creative writing class I did at the time. Uh, and the story was very simple. I can remember it vividly because it, it really struck me so hard at the time. I was 18 and he came in one day and he said, I just read a marvelous story. Uh, it's about a ship that discovers an island and on this island, the people can cross from one body to another. And by the time this ship sails away, you don't know who's left and you, and you don't know who's gone. Mm. And, I, and I remember hearing that story and thinking, you know, having that feeling, I wish I'd come up with that because that's, that's what I want to do. But yeah. out, of, out of a sense of propriety, I, I never really kind of followed up on that even, that, even though that story came to my mind many times in the intervening period. But eventually, by story 151 of the Daily Fiction Project, I said, to hell with it. I'm going to write my own version of that story, and I'm going to attribute it at the bottom of the story, which I did. Yeah. But the following day, I was thinking about it, and I realized it was obvious, but I had never thought of this before. The real story, the most interesting story, begins when that ship sails away. And any islanders that have crossed with sailors, when they sail away on that ship, what happens to them? What's their journey? And it was from at that moment that crossings really just kind of fell into place in the series of kind of visions, you might call it, that um, occurred in the space of a day or two. Wow. And how did you feel? Because obviously you realised something kind of amazing was happening or converging together to, to create something that was greater than the sum of its parts. So how did you feel that day? It, it was monumental. My life changed. And I realised that what I'd been looking for for 25 years had finally come to me and that I'd I'd had to dig so deep to find it. Yes. And, um, but I really fell in love with the idea. It was like a profound, life-changing moment. 
Wow. So you have this idea though. Now an idea can just stay an idea. You obviously took it to the next stage. What did you tell yourself you had to do or did you have some kind of plan then after you realized this is the thing I need to act on because it's so easy to not act on it? Well, um, so I remember that I had written 150 stories for the Daily Fiction Project before that. Yeah. As well as the um, countless other projects I'd written in the 25-odd years that I wanted to be a writer before that even, including a database of ideas that I'd kept of hundreds of ideas. Mm-hmm. So in a sense, Crossings is not my 151st idea. It's my, it might well be my 400th idea or my mm-hmm. 500th idea. Uh, but I, so I'd had a lot of training. I was 40 at this point. I mean, I had gone through this in like lifelong process, um, a quarter century of, of looking and digging and trying and experimenting and failing, failing over and over and over again. And I think that, that, um, what that meant was that when I came across crossings, I had an utter conviction in the idea. I knew it was right. Uh, I don't know about, I, I told everybody about it. I don't know what they thought. They must have thought I was mad. Uh, the, the conventional wisdom is you don't talk about your projects while you're doing them. I told everybody I never doubted crossings for a moment. Yeah. Wow. But at that point, you had not you, you had the premise, but you had not yet decided on the format. So that came Yes, that's true. So, um, well, not really. So I... Um, as part of the Daily Fiction Project, I've been working on another kind. Of, so what happened with the Daily Fiction Project is that I started experimenting with overlapping stories, intersecting stories. I started creating right. a kind of labyrinth of stories. And, and one of those stories that had several chapters in it, I guess, or had s- stories within stories, mm. was uh, about the final days and hours of the life of Walter Benjamin, the German writer who committed suicide uh, running away from the Nazis in 1940. Mm-hmm. And I must say, I'm not the first writer to have been interested in this. It, it does exert a certain fascination over some writers. And at least two, there are at least two novels that I know of that have been written on that subject. So it's a good thing I didn't tackle that subject on its own. But uh, what I was able to do when I had the idea of Crossings was to kind of integrate it with this idea of the death of Walter Benjamin. And the reason why um, that worked was because Walter Benjamin was fascinated with Charles Baudelaire. And so it meant that, I, um, in a sense, in terms of the, the chronology of the backstory, I had my beginning in 1791 with the ship discovering the island. I had my ending with the death of Walter Benjamin in 1940. And suddenly I had my middle with Charles Baudelaire. And I, of course, I was familiar with Angela Carter's great story, Black Venus, which is about Charles Baudelaire's muse, Jeanne Duval. So I knew that there was a, a great love story there between those two and a very complicated love story between those two. And so suddenly it all kind of came together in that sense. I was able to kind of create this figure of eight story, if you like, with those three um, nodes connecting them. So how far into your first draft were you before you decided that you were going to do it this way, that you are going to... Um change the format from a conventional format uh i was um i was probably well into my um 12th draft when wow 
Yeah. So what happened was I went, oh. um, I left I left Australia for a number of years to go and live in the US and France yeah. to write the novel for a whole host of reasons, mostly personal. But um, I'm glad I did that. I don't think I could have written this novel if I'd stayed in Australia because so much research was involved. Mm-hmm. So, but as I said earlier, I wrote it uh, like David Mitchell's Cloud Atlas uh, in the sense that it was three stories that were mixed up together. And then um, I finished a draft. It almost killed me. Um, I was um, physically and financially spent. And I came back to Australia with this draft, which was very rough. And I shopped it around everywhere to anyone who would care to um, have a look at it. And I was rejected by everybody. This was still in the conventional format? This was in the conventional format, Mm -hmm. yeah, so in the the Cloud Atlas style, if you like. Yeah. And then, um, so I went back to the States and um, decided to do another draft. I thought, okay, it's not good enough. And it was while I was doing that draft, which was like, by this stage, it's been six or seven years since I started this, but at this, so this was about two or three years ago. So it was quite about two thirds of the way into the process. Mm. Um, that's when I had the idea of doing the two sequences, and it was at that point that the novel began to attract some interest. I was able to get it um, to Picador Australia, um, who you can't pitch to directly, and uh, but through a friend, Chris Womersley, to whom I'm deeply indebted. And um, they took it on. And at the same time, I got an agent in New York, a a highly respected agent over there, who also took it on just off the slush pile. Mm. So I think it was that um, the formal conceit of the the double sequence had started to get it um, attention that it didn't get previously. So I have to ask, on a practical level, so on your 13th or whatever it is draft where you decide I'm going to change the format, what did you then have to do? How did you actually break it down so that it would all fit together, it would all make sense? Did you use, you know, index cards, Trello boards? Like on a practical level, can you describe how you made it all work? Because it's complex. It is complex, but it's actually, um, I was lucky because I'd, al- I'd already written it in this, this, in this uh, mixed up way where you had one, you know, a chapter from one story, from, oh, let me be a bit more clear. Uh, let's say chapter one from story one, chapter yeah. one from story two, chapter one from story three in that, in that kind of sequence. So it was already very complicated. Mm-hmm. All I had to do was to kind of extract um, all the chapters and, and bundle them together. And really, that's all I did. I didn't, at that point, make any effort. What happened was later, when Matilda Imler uh, began, uh, who's the publisher at Picador, began really engaging with the manuscript, she brought up all these issues that she had, and I had to, at that point, so it's gone through a couple of more drafts since then. So mm-hmm. it's probably on its, you know, 14th or 15th draft now, but, I mean, I've lost count, but... Um, she, I had to rewrite the middle section, the City of Ghosts section. I had to really do deep dive rewrites on several chapters in the, ta- in the Tales of the Albatross section to really kind of make it work. And it's been two years since Picador took it up. So, and mm-hmm. in that time, it's gone through, uh, it's, it's had a lot of work. So this was kind of a slow process. But the initial, um, the initial, 
idea of making it readable in two different directions didn't require a huge amount of work. Okay. So I just want to make it clear to listeners that the complexity is not, as a reader, it's, 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 it's not a complex reading experience. It's an enjoyable reading experience. But on the back end, because I'm always thinking about how it's created, um, I kept wondering, you know, how does, does this all work? So what's your feedback from readers? Because it can be read in one of two ways, a conventional way and a way where it's you jump around. So what's your, been your feedback from readers as to which way they've chosen to read it? It's really interesting. Um, uh, I can't tell at the at just yet <laughs> how many people are choosing to follow the Baroness sequence. Matilda did fear initially that most readers would choose not to read the Baroness sequence, but mm. at this point, I'm getting the the sense that um, people are kind of going like fifty fifty. So I'm not sure, and I'm looking forward to seeing what what people think. I um. have really made an effort with um, the setup of the book, if you like, to um, uh, encourage readers to take up the Baroness sequence. Because uh, So the Baroness sequence is the name I've given in the book mm. to the sequence where you hop around. Yeah. Uh, and I explain that in a preface. And in the preface, I present myself not as a Melbourne-based uh, writer, but <laughs> as a Parisian bookbinder. Yeah. And in, in, in the bio of the book, I, I, I extend the fiction to the bio of the book where I say Alex Landragon is a Parisian bookbinder. And I do that, I did that, and I even dedicated the book to the Baroness, who is a fictional character in the book. And I did that because I wanted to really get people into the concept from the get-go and to encourage them to read the Baroness sequence. It's a, it's a slightly more challenging method of reading, but I think it's a more rewarding method of reading as well. I think also the, uh, the choice you make kind of must say something about you as well. <laughs> well, suspect. no doubt. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, yes. Yeah. And the other thing, too, is that I think that both sequences have their own kind of, if you like, tonal qualities so that um, I suspect that if you read it conventionally, what you get is uh, what is foregrounded is the puzzly kind of aspects of the book where you have to kind of construct the backstory from these quite disparate um clusters of information that you're given, whereas if you read it in the Baroness sequence, as the name suggests, what uh, is foregrounded more in, in the Baroness sequence is the romantic aspects of the story. Mm. Now, you have described this as a 25-year journey, mm. and um, it's it's one that you haven't wavered from. You've all, you, you, you knew from when you were young or a teenager that you wanted to be a writer. What, A, what sustains you to, to continue, you know, pursuing your dream? And B, if you could just give us some idea of, you know, like a potted history of your career so we know what you kind of did at the, at, at, alongside what hmm. you're writing. Right. What sustains me in what sense? To, to keep on going. You know, okay. because you said um, that you've written a lot, you've had, um, you said you've had failures, you said, you know, you'd had some rejections. What kept you going? Well, everything you can imagine, you know. Mm. Um, I, to me, being a writer is, um, it's my life, it's my identity, you know. Mm. Um, but also, 
I, I mean, I'm, um, I, it's such a big question, you know. I, I could, t I could answer you in so many different ways. I think failure is part and parcel of writing, and sure. failure is part and parcel of living. And if you um, want to be a writer and you give up after a couple of years, then I would suggest, um, you know, with all respect, that uh, perhaps you didn't really want to be a writer in the first place. Like being a writer is, um, to me, like being a ninja warrior. It's it's a life. It's a it's 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 um, it's an existence. It's a calling. It's a vocation, and it's a privilege and a blessing and and a huge um, form of wealth. So and and a lot of people have have given their lives over to writing, you know, like it, it's it's um it's inc it's it's a huge thing. So you don't give up if you fail after year five or year t or year ten. I believe you just keep going. You keep going until you until you you find something great. And even if you never find something great, you you keep going anyway because you are in a huge ocean of of poetry and beauty and struggle and all and all of those things mm. when you were in the depths of your manuscript or no it doesn't even have to be actually this manuscript I mean when you're in the depths of writing um, when you're you know fully focused on a particular project what's your typical day like when you've got it in gold like you want to finish this manuscript you want to finish a particular story do you have a particular routine or or a word count goal, or anything like that. No, I, 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 um, I thrive on chaos, and <laughs> uh, so okay, uh, every day is different. And I actually, I find that um, if 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 things get too repetitive, I get stale. So I, um, I find that I have to move around. Like um, I'll, I'll find a, a new workspace, for example. I might find a new library and get really excited about it, and. And a huge amount of energy will come out of the novelty of, of the place. Mm. And then I'll get stale after a certain amount of time. I never know how long it will take to get stale. But um, And so what I found writing this book, what I found to be really um, energising was not just moving from workplace to workplace within the one city, but moving from country to country and from city to city. And I must have written this uh, book in about five different places. And I think the energy of all those places is it can be felt in the novel when, um, when you read it in that sense. Mm -hmm. And now that this is out, um, are you already working on your next thing? And if so, what is it? Uh, no, I'm not. Um, I... So you, to go back to a previous question, you said what sustains me. Well, I've I've been lucky enough to have a career as a, a like a paid career as a writer. I was a um, Lonely Planet writer for a, a long time. Currently, I'm uh, a copywriter, um, and I I don't believe I, I'm not sure that it, that talking to me is a great way of learning how to. Uh, go about the business of being a writer because I flout a lot of the conventional wisdom. I don't believe you need to write every day to be a writer, mm -hmm. for, for one thing. Um, and I, I think you need, uh, I would, instead of writing every day, which I've tried and which didn't work for me, I would say spend a lot of time thinking about what you're going to write and what your concept is and, and all that kind of stuff, uh, which, which is what I did. But Everyone has their own method. Um, but as for what comes next, I have about six different 
projects I'd love to engage in. And uh, to some degree, I'm waiting to see what happens with crossings because I want to see what opportunities crossings opens up for me. Um, I could go in any one of, of a number of different directions and they're all really interesting. But um, I think in this day and age, you have to be mindful of where is the point of connection between what you want to do and what the world wants to read? Mm, yep. That's a yeah, great point. Um, how do you determine what that is? Uh, I don't know. Like with crossings, it was just uh, intuitive and it was looking and digging and it was a falling in love experience. So I could, I have, what I have in mind, what I would love to do is a sequel to crossings that is even wilder than the original. Um, and, uh, but whether or not um, the, the industry and the publishing and all that is ready to accept an either, even wilder version of the novel I've just published is really not up to me. And if I was to, before I launch into the three or four or five year process that would that would entail writing this sequel, mm -hmm. I want to, I, I, I don't want to write on spec anymore. Um, yeah. You know, it's hard. You know, this one, I barely made it like with my sanity and my health. Um, I scraped through. I'm not sure that I want to push myself to that those kinds of limits again on spec. Yeah, sure. If you, um, when you say you want it to be wilder, do you mean wilder in terms of the premise or the format? Well, uh, yeah, the pre both. Um, the, right. the, yeah, what I have in mind is, yeah, uh, probably wilder in both senses. It would be, for example, most sequels would, would take up the, the story of the characters in the original. In the sequel that I have in my mind at the moment, I'm thinking of a story that actually tells the story of what happened to the manuscript crossings after it disappeared in 1940 to the mo to the moment of its publication in 2019 wow mm. that would be cool yeah it would be cool <laughs> but I, I you know i'm not as i say it's 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 out there and yes. uh, it's it's po even possible that the characters in the original if they appear would only appear in a background sense and we would only get a sense of their presence rather than actually following what happened to those characters yes. and then I, I i have um a third installment in mind which would be set in in the near future so um and and i have about four or five other projects as well that are also pretty exciting. So as to what happens next, I'm I'm waiting for destiny to give me a sign. I'm pretty sure this is going to happen. I have a feeling. But let me just circle back to um, you do work as a copywriter. You've done travel gui guides for Lonely Planet, as you've mentioned. Do you need to quarantine your kind of writing in the course of your day like or can you easily switch between this and fiction between say travel guides and fiction or copywriting for a client and fiction oh that's a good question um so everything I, when i decided there would be a writer i decided to go all in 
which meant that even though you know I could have studied something else and 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 like for example a lot of people might study law yeah. and and you know so they had these I decided that um I would go all in so that I couldn't back out because I knew if, I mean to to decide to become a writer the way that I did when I was a teen, teenager is a slightly suicidal kind of um, decision. In, my mother, for example, when when I told her this, being an Armenian, she wanted me to be a lawyer. Uh, she said, when you're 40, you're going to be poor, mad and bitter. <laughs> and, you know, the funny thing <laughs> is, the funny thing is that she was right. When I was 40, I was poor, mad and bitter. But she, what she didn't realise, what she didn't tell me is that, you know, life goes on after 40 and that things can change. Uh, so, but I thought, no, uh, it was an act of rebellion at that stage and I, and I went all in. So what that meant was that I studied arts and I came, studied English and I came out, I didn't really have any skills, but I was lucky enough to graduate from uni at the um, zenith of the great age of travel guides. <laughs> Whether I was any good at it, um, I don't know. I, I think what I do best is write novels like Crossings, but um, I, was, well, I was good enough at it to, to create a career for myself. And I think um, the fundamental principles of writing don't change. You need to be able to put yourself in the shoes of your reader. And with crossings, it's exactly the same thing. So at the moment, for example, in my day job, I call myself a UX writer. A UX writer um, is involved in the nitty-gritty of creating user experiences for people online. And it's all about putting yourself in the shoes of the reader. But for crossings, it's the same thing. I wanted to give readers of crossings a unique experience that they won't get anywhere else, which is what they have now. Um, but... Creating that was also about putting yourself in the sh in the shoes in the body, like it's like almost literally a, a crossing. Yeah. You have to put yourself in the body of the reader and and try to to orchestrate an experience for them, a, a strong, enriching, beautiful poetic experience. Mm. Wonderful. Well, you have done exactly that. So um, good luck with the book. I'm sure you don't need it. But thank you so much for talking to us today, Alex. Uh, thank you for listening, Valerie. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Our course, Short Story Essentials, will show you the techniques to create your own 2,500-word short story. Created by Kathy Tasker, a fiction editor with more than 25 years' experience, this course has a very clear goal to help you write your own short story that you can be proud of, one that you can enter in short story competitions and share with your friends and family. We give you the blueprint to structure your short story, teach you vital techniques so that your characters come to life and give you the tools to bring your own ideas and creativity to the process. The course is split into seven modules and each is designed to guide you through each step of writing your full story. Then, once you've completed it, you can submit your story for personal feedback from your tutor. With our online self-paced courses, you can learn in your own time with 12 months access to all course materials. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash stories.
There you go, Alex Landragon and his book Crossings. I'm just I'm I'm just in awe at how like I just can't even get my head around the process of how you would draw that I book know. together. I just I it was you know just, like wow. Yeah, it's just the you, you need a certain kind of brain, really. I would say. <laughs> but anyway, uh, let's move on. So um, before you head off with your authorial bikini, what are you doing? <laughs> I'm, I'm packing okay, <laughs> my <sure>. authorial bikini, <laughs> organising my life. I don't know. I'm just doing stuff. Do you know what I, you know, we talked about this last week, but yeah. the gardening thing. So we've been oh, doing yeah. our, our ninja gardening oh. over the last, um, it's like extreme gardening. People say, it's like oh, you pick know, up, put down in the garden. Oh, it's not even. It's like slash and burn, baby. Okay. Um, but it's it's really physical, and it's um it's it's great, you know, because it. I mean, I've talked, I talk at length always about how great gardening is for the writing process because of that. Just that, um, you know, it's that consistent kind of methodical. You've got to, you've, your whole body's busy doing stuff, and you've got to entertain your brain in some way because really, there's only onion grass and you. So mm. you kind of got to think, you know, you it, it's really great. I find that I always go through some of my most creative writing patches when we are in this process of actually, you know, sorting the garden out over winter. Um, my word counts tend to go up, like everything, because wow. I have so – well, I just have so much time to think oh, about stuff. And so I'm doing an awful lot of sorting of stuff in my head and taking mm. my story in different directions um, in sorceling myself, let's just mm. put that out there. Um, and so, yeah, it's actually quite useful. And the other thing I find that really helps my writing at this time of year, and you're going to laugh at this, you ready? Mm. Tour de France. What? Tour de France. Yeah. So because it's on late at night, mean? well, I'm sitting there with Procrastipub, right? And, and it, I put it on in the background and I get my laptop out, um, because I'm busy, right? I've got kids running around during the day. I'm trying to get stuff done. So I'm right, I'm back to writing in the middle of the night always at this time of year. And mm-hmm. so I sit there and I put it on in the background and it's just that burble, 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 you know, yeah, of, you yeah. know, f- you know, the voices yeah, and yeah. blah, 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 yellow jersey. Yeah. Blah, so procrastinate pups lying, lying there snoozing away and that's on in the background. And I just, and I find that I, I just sit there and I write stuff because again, yeah. it's a bit like onion weed. Yeah, it's like there's something about the voices of those commentators that just yes. like burble, burble, burble. So yeah, Tour de France really helpful for writing. If you're if you're needing inspiration, put it on. Yeah, right. Well, the Tour de yeah. France is playing a prominent role in this household at the moment because my partner's really into the Tour de France, so it's on. I don't know all the time, but he's <laughs> decided to do his own Tour de France and. He's got a spreadsheet happening and Stop. whatever number of kilometres that the, the riders ride, like if it's 194 kilometres that day, he has to ride one-tenth of that. So he'll <laughs> ride 19.4 kilometres. <laughs> so he's matching the Tour de France but one-tenth of the of the effort. Um, and, uh, yeah, so there's a lot of Tour de france going on here at the moment. But I would also like to point out your comment about gardening. So uh, you, you you might not have a garden like Alison, but there's other things that you can do that where you're, you're actually still writing even while you're doing another activity. And yeah. one of the um, stories that I'll, I'll never forget, when I judged the, oh, it was the Lane Cove, um, oh, the short story, short story competition, I yeah. That. And the winner, who was a winner by a country mile, and her words were just—it was just 
captivating from the first word to the last. It was, it was magnificent. And she, she won and she said, and she basically said, well, her job is as a cleaner, like a janitor. So she spends all day, you know, mopping and cleaning and wiping. And she just creates these characters and stories in her head. And they brew and brew and brew all day while she's cleaning. And they get refined further and further and further. And then she pours them out when she Mm. gets home. And they're magnificent. See, so she's pouring them out in front of the Tour de France, having gardened. Yeah, all probably. That's exactly how it works. It's extraordinary. Probably. All right, so that's your recipe: gardening slash cleaning in the Tour de France. All right, so where do we find you online, Al? You'll find me at alisontait.com, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-T-A-I-T. Uh, you'll find me on Twitter at, at Altait, A-L-T-A-I-T, and you will find me on Facebook and Instagram at Alison Tate Writer. And you, Val, where do we find you? You'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram and over at ValerieKoo.com. Of course, you'll also find the show notes at SoYouWantToBeARider.com.au and join me and Alison on Facebook. To our listener community, just search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community on Facebook and request to join. We'd love to have you in there. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.